A number of years ago, I read about somebody named YK, who found themselves in a dark, sad place in their life. This rut had robbed them of any joy and any happiness. And they asked their friends and family how they could escape this sadness. And so they read and they researched online, desperately trying to understand what they could do to alleviate this pain. And in their search, they discovered a perennial idea. It kept popping up over and over again in different traditions and different cultures. The common message was simply let go. But for YK, she didn't know what this could mean. How could she just let go? Of what? It seemed that something was missing, not that she needed to let go of something she was holding. This universal idea of letting go seemed so big and mystical. She felt helpless in understanding the how, never mind the what, of it. But convinced that this repeated truth might be true, she embraced it. If she didn't know how to let go of the big stuff, she would start with the small, her personal life. And so she set out a way to learn to let go. She taught herself, one step at a time. In fact, one day at a time. She started a personal project called the 365 Release Project. Every day for an entire year, she would give one thing away. Knowing how this plan could easily be sidetracked, she set some guidelines for herself. One, what she gave away had to be per- couldn't be perishable. It had to be something that she'd been keeping for a while. Two, it couldn't be money. Three, it had to be a tangible object that required her to physically give it to somebody. Four, it had to be something that she'd kept for at least a year, long enough for there to be attachment in some way. Five, it had to be given away and not sold. And six, she decided she needed to do it every single day. She found that if it wasn't a daily practice, it just didn't happen. So an idea became a thought, which became a beautiful attitude of letting go, which repeated over and over again and became a habit. And this, among other habits, created her new lifestyle. So she began to search for things to give away. She would write about each object and why she still had it. Was it nostalgia? Was it conservation? Was she being frugal? Was it laziness? Did she just not know what to do with it? Was it beauty that caused her to struggle with discarding it? Was it pragmatism? Was it greed? You see, we keep so many things for so many different reasons, don't we? So on her website, you can read everything she gave away over the course of that year. There was artwork. There was a necklace, a baseball glove, books, lamps, shoes, luggage, photographs, technology, tools, clothes, and the list went on and on. And many of the things she hung on to had nostalgia as the reason. And she found a way to let them go without diminishing the memory, just the hold they seemed to have on her. She noticed that as the year progressed and as she began to unclutter, she discovered space, room in her life, in her mind, in her heart. It influenced the way she now acquired things, knowing that if she brings something home, it might just never leave. She began to do art, because on the other side of clutter, she discovered creativity. And she began to experiment artistically. She discovered in the beauty of creating art, the power of making something that she would ultimately let go of. The project changed her. 
why Kay became an activist. She became an artist, a teacher. Because when she experienced the freedom of letting go, she wanted to fight the oppression of not just physical things that hold us, but the systems, the ideologies that she learned also need to go in order to deal with so much of what we hoard. YK set out to discover how to let go of what she was holding onto in her heart and mind and discovered the path was to unclutter her life. She set out to find a way to be happier and found something she didn't expect. Joy, purpose, meaning, and a whole lot of space. Spirituality universally teaches this. I get asked often by people in a hurry to be spiritual what the meaning of life is. I've literally been asked for the short list of what to do. Hey, Aaron, they'll say, just get to the point. What is the point of it all? And I first start by telling them that that's a good question. Might even be the right question. I tell them what the perennial weave of wisdom traditions all teach, that the meaning of life is to learn. Huh, to learn what they ask, to learn to let go, to let go of what they ultimately ask. These are all right questions. To learn to let go of pain and failure and anger, disappointment and regret. To let go of hate and indifference. To let go of broken dreams and failures. Really? They'll often say to me. Why let go? So that at the end of this life, if we've learned what, how to let go of everything that has tried to hold on to us, perhaps we've learned what we need to in order to let go of life itself. It's ironic, actually, that I meet so many people who feel so broken and damaged, and they're asking, what's wrong with me? What am I missing? And I've learned that perhaps they aren't missing anything except the point. There isn't something that they don't have as much as it's the accumulation of things they were never meant to hold their entire lives. We need to be very careful of what we pick up, because we might not know how to put it down. Jesus wants to teach us to let go. He will model it for us. But for those not watching, perhaps they'll hear it in his teaching. Because he teaches it. And then we can witness everything he says and how he lives. Let go. Learning to not be so attached to things in this life or else we become them. For many, it's not just that they have wealth, they become their wealth. The same can be said of those in poverty. They can become their poverty, suffering and failure and desire, desire to take over as well. We become these things. They become mentalities for us, shaping and limiting our lives. These are meant to be things we experience, not things that become our identity. Too many are going through this life desperately searching for what's missing. This leads not only to their lives becoming about the acquisition of stuff, And once we've acquired, especially more than we need, our motivation changes to protecting that which we've acquired. And then when challenged, we begin to spend our time justifying and defending that which we've acquired, never asking if it's worth defending or even keeping. Meister Eckert wrote that finding the divine in our soul isn't about addition, it's about subtraction. It isn't about adding anything. There isn't actually anything missing. It's actually about subtracting or letting go of all that we've acquired or are holding on to that's now obscuring the beauty of what lies within. We are the image bearers of the divine, the scripture teaches from the very beginning, found in the book of Genesis. We were fashioned 
to reflect the image of God. But what happens when we either obscure that image or are unable to see it or perhaps didn't even know it existed? What happens when others aren't able to see it in us anymore? Perhaps this is why violence and indifference is so prevalent in our world and not just because we can't see the divine spark in someone else's life, but because maybe we can't even see it when we look in the mirror. Our lives are so full of so much that it's not only weighing us down, it's making us unrecognizable as human beings created in the image of God. Now, Jesus has a lot to say about this, so much, in fact, that this is one of the five things he talks about when he wants to talk. It is a foundational part of the Sermon on the Mount. These ideas are found in every gospel and reinforced with story and metaphor over and over again. And these ideas are not isolated. They're not disconnected teachings. As you'll discover as we sit at Jesus' feet in this series, these ideas are not only interconnected, they build on each other. And when we begin to see them as tools Jesus offers us to build an abundant life, we discover that they're also the same tools to build a different world. Matthew's biography records what Luke also records Jesus as saying in a different setting to a different audience. Evidence that this was something he spoke about on many occasions. And there are months worth of sermons in this encounter, so I will read it all together, but touch on merely a couple big ideas. This is found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 18. Jesus sees this large crowd of people, and he climbs up on the side of a mountain, and he begins to teach. And this is what he says. Don't accumulate treasure on earth that will be destroyed eventually by moths or by rust, or even be taken by thieves. Instead, accumulate treasure in heaven. Now, it's important to know that that word for heaven here is the Greek word oronos that literally means a universe. So I think a better translation would be store instead universal treasures that are beyond the simple reach of anything that could destroy or steal it. Put value in that which cannot be taken. Jesus continues, because where your treasure is, that's where your heart can be found. What you are accumulating, hoarding, holding on to, in turn becomes you, Jesus is saying. He continues, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But your eye, if it's bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is dark, how great will that darkness be? No one can serve two masters. You either will despise the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and reject the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I think here Jesus is referencing how we perceive that which we want. And if the eyes of our heart are noble, we will see in noble ways. If the eyes of our heart are darkened, how limited in terms of what we actually perceive. And as Bob Dylan wrote, you got to serve somebody. Jesus says we choose who we serve by how we perceive and receive what this life offers. So Jesus continues. He says, listen, don't be anxious about your life what you can eat, what you can drink, about your body, what you can wear. Is life not more than food and the body more than the clothes you wear? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, and yet God feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your life? And why are you anxious about what you can wear? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. 
They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his splendor was not dressed like one of these. But if God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, how much more will he not clothe you? O you of little faith, you don't have to be anxious, wondering what you can eat, what you can drink, what you can wear. The Gentiles seek after all those things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Instead, Seek first the world of God and its justice, and all these other things will find their way to you. So don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. Now there's a lot in this passage, but there's a few thoughts that all seem to point in the same direction. Let go of the desire to become so attached to things that we store them in abundance. Even when we have no need for them. That becomes clutter. And we become the guardians of stuff that doesn't matter and have no time for the stuff that does. It is in the letting go of the kingdoms we're building for ourselves that we discover another world that wants to break through. Not one of bricks and mortar, but one that influences those who place the bricks and mortar. Jesus begins with the familiar the attachment and desire for treasure and money, but then he quickly takes it deeper when he speaks of our anxiety. You see, this is attachment as well. This passage is often interpreted as people anxious about having enough food or clothing. But you'll notice the translation I used has Jesus saying, don't be anxious about what you can eat, about what you can wear instead of what you will eat and will wear. The difference is subtle but equally meaningful. You see, in the Jewish community, they lived with purity laws that dictated what they could and couldn't eat, what they could and couldn't wear. Certain foods were considered unclean and forbidden, and certain fabrics mixed together were also considered unclean and forbidden. And there was a lot of work put into merely eating and getting dressed in a day. And for those living on the margins, that stress was amplified. Poverty would make one anxious not only of whether or not they had food and clothing, but whether or not they had the appropriate food and clothing. And Jesus is giving them this idea, this teaching, permission to let go of those questions. There are more important questions to ask. Some critics would argue that Jesus here is minimizing those living without food scarcity or living in poverty, they're missing the larger universal component of what Jesus is doing in his ministry on earth. He's setting up a new community where all belong. Poverty isn't lack of food or clothing. It's lack of community. This is what Jesus is setting up. So nobody is left without. They are seen. This passage to me is more about letting go of the barriers to that diverse community than it is about scolding people for worrying about not having enough. Anxiety is the attachment to thoughts, and Jesus is giving us permission to let it go, to not store them up, to hoard those thoughts. Someone with an over-attachment to things is being robbed just as much, just in different ways as the person overly attached to their thoughts, their ideas, and their desires. In the end, they're both being robbed. Let go of your desire for more than you need. Even with anxiety, Jesus says, today has enough trouble of its own. Why are you worrying about tomorrow? Anxiety is the accumulation of more worry than we are capable of processing or even need to process. It's catastrophizing what hasn't happened yet. How is, 
How is it that we live in a world where some have so much and others have none? We know the easy argument is that some have worked hard and perhaps others haven't, but I'm not even going to get into that whole privileged argument. Instead, I'll take the high road. I believe that those in moments when I have more than I need, it's because I now have the ability to share with those who have less than they need. My abundance can only be justified when I recognize the beauty and the beautiful obligation that comes with it. And this isn't just about stuff, although Jesus makes it clear that that is a big part of it. This is also about joy, grief, pain, and fear. On any given Sunday, there are those who've come because life has been very hard this week. And they've showed up here at the parish hoping to find a moment of grace, of hope. There are others of us who've had an incredible week filled with abundance and joy. And we've gathered to celebrate, to thank God, to be together. For some, their poverty is lack of hope and joy. For others, it's financial. Still others, perhaps human connection. And it is no coincidence that we're all in the same room. Gathering around a table of food that is merely a symbol of our sharing of all things. Big table. We gather to redistribute abundance and pain. This is what happens when we discover that in community we have more than enough. God is here. And even two fish and three loaves can be more than enough when it's given to Jesus. And the kingdom breaks through as a new world is manifested. And Jesus never suggests that we shouldn't have things. Just that we don't let those things have us, control us, or limit us. That we see things through spiritual eyes and not the darkened eyes of scarcity, greed, and privilege. This passage begins with material things that we collect to the point of clutter, and he quickly moves towards our thoughts that we collect that can hold us back as our minds fill with clutter as well. He doesn't say we shouldn't have stuff or even have thoughts. He's instructing us to learn to hold them in such a way that they are not perceived as permanent. It's okay to have wealth, but don't become your wealth. Let it pass beyond the world you are building to the new world we can create together. It's okay to have thoughts, but don't become your thoughts. This passage is often misquoted as Jesus saying that we shouldn't worry, we shouldn't have anxiety. That isn't actually what he's saying here. He says don't be anxious about what you don't need to be anxious about because today has enough things to be concerned about. We do not need to add to it. So let it go. Don't accumulate more stuff than you need. Don't accumulate thoughts that cannot set you free. This is why Jesus' most famous message, the one recorded in the Gospels when he begins his ministry, is now is the time. This is the moment. The world of God is within reach. Change. Change your thinking to a better way and believe the good news. How do you change your thinking? You let go. You let go of old ways, old ideas. You don't become too attached to ideas, knowing that things may change. You've heard it said, but get ready for something completely different. How many times does Jesus challenge people's ideas? I think the real key to Jesus' teaching on this idea happens in this last verse. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all the rest will be added unto you. If we could find a way to value what God values, 
then perhaps every other desire will line up accordingly. Most importantly in your life, learn to desire the things that really matter, the things that are bigger than just us, just you, just me. Seek first what divine love desires, justice and wholeness for all, and everything else will find its way. This will take faith, better translated, trust, and that will require us to believe Jesus. You see, the problem isn't desire. The problem is disordered desires. When we live creating gestures that embody the world of God, instead of a world of fear and scarcity, every other desire will find its place. And when our desires are in the proper order, when we have learned to hold things in such a way as to be able to let them go in their own time, the space we find gives us room, room to grow into the person we've yet to become in a new world that is breaking through. Thank you.